choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 338 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Commander Dave Scott, Part 2, and the Postal Covers Incident. In the previous episode, we began Dave Scott's biography, ending after his Gemini 8 flight. Today, we continue with Scott's work during the Apollo program. Scott's first Apollo assignment was as backup senior pilot slash navigator for what would become known as Apollo 1. It was scheduled for launch in February 1967, with Jim McDivitt as backup commander and Russell Swikert as pilot. In that capacity, they spent much of their time at North American Rockwell's plant in Downey, California, where the command and service module for that mission was under construction. By January of 1967, Scott's crew had been assigned as prime crew for a subsequent Apollo mission and were at Downey on January 27th when the fire that took the lives of the Apollo 1 prime crew during a pre-launch test occurred. During the fire, the inward opening hatch had proved impossible for the astronauts to open, and Scott's post-fire assignment was to serve on the team designing a simpler outward opening hatch. After the Apollo program resumed, Scott was assigned to McDivitt's crew for Apollo 8, which at the time was intended to be an Earth orbit test of the full Apollo spacecraft including the lunar module. But there were delays in the development of the lunar module, and in August 1968, NASA manager George Lowe proposed that if Apollo 7 went well, Apollo 8 should go to lunar orbit without a lunar module so as not to hold up the program. The Earth orbit test would thus become Apollo 9. McDivitt was offered Apollo 8 by Deke Slayton, but he turned it down on behalf of his crew, preferring to wait for Apollo 9, which would involve extensive testing of the spacecraft and was dubbed a test pilot's dream. And and now I sort of move past Gemini into uh, my second flight, which was Apollo 9, and that's where we really got into uh, the digital autopilot utilization and development of procedures and and the capability. Apollo 9 was a, uh, an Earth orbital checkout of the entire Apollo configuration, all the spacecraft, all the computers. As command module pilot for Apollo 9, Scott's responsibilities were heavy. The lunar module was to separate from the command and service module during the mission, 
If it failed to return, Scott would have to run the entire spacecraft for re-entry, normally a three-man job. He would also have to go rescue the lunar module if it could not perform the rendezvous, and if it could not dock, would have to assist McDivitt and Swikert in performing an extravehicular activity or spacewalk back to the command and service module. The planned February 28, 1969 launch date was postponed as all three astronauts had head colds, and NASA was wary of medical issues in space after problems on Apollo 7 and 8. The launch took place on March 3, 1969, and a few hours later, Scott had performed a maneuver essential to the lunar landing by piloting the command and service module gumdrop away from the S-4B rocket stage, then turned gumdrop around and docked with the lunar module Spider still attached to the S-4B before the combined spacecraft separated from the rocket. Swigert vomited twice on the third day in space suffering from space adaptation syndrome. He was supposed to do a spacewalk from the lunar module's hatch to that of the command module the following day, proving that this could be done under emergency conditions. But because of concerns about his condition, simply exited the lunar module while Scott stood in the command module's hatch, bringing in experiments and photographing Swigert. And during this time, the lunar module lifeboat test was conducted. And we did such things as... Uh, the lifeboat exercise with the lunar module, which was subsequently used on Apollo 13, was a demonstration of uh, having the lunar module, which was a lander, and the command and service module, which was the orbital vehicle, together and utilize the engine on the lander to actually get back from the moon, which Apollo 13 had to do. And the program was written prior to Apollo 9, and we demonstrated it in flight. And it was an interesting exercise. I, I was the command module pilot, or I, I was in a spacecraft that kept one person while the other two guys would go down to the moon, where all, although on Apollo 9 we didn't go to the moon, but the exercises were carried out, and as uh, my cohorts, uh, Jim McDivitt and Rusty Schweikert, performed the exercise in a lunar module of lighting the engine, why I figured out a little program in a command module, with the help of my MIT buddies, to monitor their burn in a reverse direction so that I could tell with my computer how their burn was going. Of course, I had the, the platform and the accelerometers and everything, but it was just a matter of reversing a couple of signs, and I could tell them, as a matter of fact, had they lost their uh, limb guidance computer, I could have given them the cutoff instructions and everything else on board. It's not a big thing, but for a user, it's a big thing to be able to have flexibility to do something like that, because nobody had ever planned that, and I found that alone in the command module, it was nice to have something to do. <laughs> but in this, this particular flight, another thing we did was to uh, burn the big engine on the service module, which is a large rocket engine in the combination, to actually light it and guide it through a manually controlled trajectory change. And by that, I mean that we, would actually, we actually programmed the computer to give us the parameters in a display format such that during a period of fixed time with the engine on, we would steer, if you would, the, uh, the vehicle by hand. And I actually, and this, this is one of the fun things I got to do on the flight, I actually got to hold a hand controller and with the needles uh, on the display panel being driven by the computer, 
fly the spaceship in space with the engine running for, gee, I don't know, it must have been something like three or four minutes, which is a long time. And uh, that's a pretty exciting thing. All through a digital autopilot. Uh, you know, one of the early, you might call, fly-by-wire. Airplanes do it now all the time. But uh, that was, a, I think, a pretty uh, important demonstration of a new capability. On the fifth day in space, March 7th, McDivitt and Swigert in the Lunar Module Spider flew away from the Command and Service Module while Scott remained in Gumdrop, making him the first American astronaut to be alone in space since the Mercury program, as well as the first rendezvous for the Apollo program. And on Apollo 9, we did the first Apollo rendezvous, wherein the Rusty and Jim got in the lunar module and separated from myself in a command module and went out about 60 miles and then came back in a rendezvous. Well, today, after all the Apollo work and everything, nobody thinks that's a big deal because we've done it so much. But I'll guarantee you, at that time, it was very interesting because they didn't have a heat shield. And had they not returned in a rendezvous, there was no way home. Well, there was a way home, but it wasn't a very good way. You know, they could come down. But uh, even that little exercise was exciting. They had a, we didn't have everything we wanted in the Apollo days. People used to think we did. But uh, for instance, the uh, command and service module, where I was, did not have a radar. There, there was no way you could actually measure range or range rate. And that's essential. Well, we used to think it was essential for a rendezvous. The lunar module had the radar. The command module did, however, have a computational capability to perform the rendezvous, but without what we thought at the time was adequate information. In other words, we believed at the time that without range information, direct measured range information, the computation wouldn't really converge. And uh, so we still had a program on board. I'll tell you a little bit about the other part of that, but. Rusty and Jim separated, went out, and part of their rendezvous was at night. And lo and behold, the light on the limb, which I was supposed to watch through the sextant to monitor them, failed. And uh, they went into the dark side, and that's the last I saw of them for about 20 minutes. And uh, that gets to be rather exciting. <laughs> Especially when, you know, you're never really sure uh, that the engine burned right, that the attitude was right, that it burned long enough, and all those sorts of things. And I remember, boy, it was really an exciting thing when they came into sunlight and I had them right dead center in a sextant automatically. And it was a combination of the two computers in which the computer on a lunar module calculated the burn, uh, read out the residuals, and Rusty and Jim read the residuals to me, and I entered the burn parameters into my computer, and I told my computer to point the sextant where they, would where they would be when they came into sunlight. And all of that got done absolutely perfectly. I mean, boy, it was an amazing thing that they popped into sunlight and they were right dead center where they were supposed to be. After all the uncertainties of attitude control and main engine burns and drift and all that sort of thing, pretty, pretty amazing operation. The remainder of the Apollo 9 mission was devoted to test of the command module, mostly performed by Scott. So McDivitt and Swigert had plenty of time to observe the Earth as Scott worked. The mission stayed in space one orbit longer than planned due to rough seas in the Atlantic Ocean recovery zone. Apollo 9 splashed down on March 13, 1969, less than four nautical miles from the helicopter carrier USS Guadalcanal. 
after I got through with Apollo 9, I went on and, and uh, spent some time as a backup crew member on Apollo 12, and then I got into Apollo 15, which was a, the uh, fourth lunar landing. And I get the two best guys in the world. Chairman, bless his heart, I loved him. He was the best partner you could have on the moon. Jim kept me squared away, and he always did it. It was sort of like, hey, Dave, don't you think we ought to do this? Which meant you're screwing up. Fix it, you know? <laughs> but he was a wonderful guy, and I really, really enjoyed my relationship with Jim. We had a great time. And we had Al to take care of the command module, and, you know, he pointed out we were on a surface for three days, and he was alone for three days. And he had to be there when we got back. He had to do a big maneuver to change planes so we could catch him. And there he was all by himself. I never worried one minute. I was never concerned for one second. I knew Al would be there. Apollo 15 was the first J mission, which emphasized scientific research with longer stays on the moon's surface and the use of the lunar roving vehicle. Already having an interest in geology, Scott made time during the training for his crew to go on field trips with Caltech geologist Lee Silver. While scientists were divided over where Apollo 15 should land, Scott's argument for the area of Hadley Reel eventually won out. As time passed toward the launch date, Scott pushed to make the field trips more like what they would encounter on the lunar surface. With mock backpacks simulating what they would wear on the moon and using the training version of the lunar roving vehicle. Apollo 15 launched from Kennedy Space Center Launch Complex 39A on July 26, 1971. The outward flight to the moon's orbit had a few problems, but the mission entered lunar orbit without major incident. The descent to the moon by the lunar module called Falcon with Scott and Irwin aboard, took place on the late afternoon of July 30th, with Scott as commander attempting the landing. Despite difficulties caused by the computer-controlled flight path being to the south of what was planned, Scott assumed manual control for the final descent and successfully landed the Falcon within the designated landing zone. Now, the lunar landing itself could have been done automatically, and a lot of times people have asked me about that. Uh, it could have been accomplished automatically through the limb guidance computer, but nobody ever did it. Uh, we all felt, and I was one of them, that you just, when you get to that point and you're going to land on the moon, you've got to have your hands on a stick. <laughs> you just, <laughs> I mean, I like computers, I believe in computers, but it ain't going to land me on the moon. <laughs> I'm going to do that because, you know, if something gets screwed up, it's going to be me. It ain't going to be the computer. But, but actually, I, my, my thinking was, at the time, to be honest about it, was that if a problem did occur, it was so time critical that you wouldn't have time to take corrective action. So you stay ahead of that problem by flying it manually. Now, you're probably fooling yourself because you're still going through the computer. I mean, the stick that you move goes through the computer to fire the thrusters which is not a lot different from the computer doing it itself, but you feel different, you know? <laughs> I got it, you know? After landing, Scott and Irwin donned their helmets and gloves of their pressure suits, and Scott performed the first and only stand-up EVA on the lunar surface. By poking his head 
and upper body out of the docking port on top of the lunar module. He took panoramic photographs of the surrounding areas from an elevated position and scouted the terrain they would be driving across the next day. On the first moonwalk, after deploying the lunar rover from its folded-up position on the side of the lunar module's descent stage, Scott drove with Irwin in the direction of Hadley Reel. Once there, Scott marveled at the beauty of the scene, their exploits followed by a television camera mounted on the rover and controlled from Earth. Scott and Irwin took samples of the lunar surface before returning to the lunar module to set up the ALSEP, the experiments that were to continue to run after their departure. The second traverse, the following day, August 1st, was to the slope of Mount Hadley Delta. At Spur Crater, they discovered one of the most famous lunar samples, a plagioclase-rich anorthosite from the early lunar crust that was later dubbed the Genesis Rock by the press. On the third day, August 2nd, they went on their final moonwalk, an excursion cut short by problems with retrieving a core sample. Upon the return to the lunar module, Scott, while in front of a television camera, performed an experiment that would become the most famous footage of the entire Apollo 15 mission. Scott dropped a hammer and a feather to demonstrate Galileo's theory that objects in a vacuum will drop at the same rate. After driving the lunar rover to a position where the camera could view the Falcon's takeoff, Scott left a memorial to the astronauts and cosmonauts who had died to advance space exploration. This consisted of a plaque bearing their names and a small aluminum sculpture called Fallen Astronaut. Once this was done, Scott re-entered the lunar module and soon thereafter, Falcon lifted off from the moon. Apollo 15 splashed down in the Pacific north of Honolulu on August 7, 1971, the first crew to land on the moon and not be quarantined on return. Instead, the astronauts were flown to Houston and, after debriefing, were sent on the usual circuit of addresses to Congress, celebrations, and foreign trips that usually met returning Apollo astronauts. Scott actually regretted the lack of quarantine, which he felt would have given them time to recover from the flight as the demands on their time were heavy. Scott was next assigned to the Apollo-Soyuz test flight project scheduled for 1975. In his role with Apollo-Soyuz, Scott traveled to Moscow leading a team of technical experts there, he met the commander of the Soviet part of the mission, Alexei Leonov, with whom he would later write a joint autobiography. In 1973, Scott was offered the job of deputy director of NASA's Dryden Flight Research Center, located at Edwards, a place Scott had long loved. This allowed Scott to fly aircraft that reached the edge of space and let him renew his acquaintance with the retired Chuck Yeager, who was there as a consulting test pilot and to whom Scott granted flying privileges. On April 18, 1975, at age 42, 
Scott became the center director at Dryden. This was a civilian appointment, and to accept it, Scott retired from the Air Force in March 1975. Scott found the work interesting and exciting, but with budget cuts and the forthcoming end of approach and landing tests for the space shuttle, he decided in 1977 to leave NASA and officially retired on September 30th. Entering the private sector, Scott founded Scott Science and Technology Incorporated. In the late 1970s and the 1980s, Scott worked on several government projects, including designing the astronaut training for a proposed Air Force version of the space shuttle. One of Scott's firms went out of business after the 1986 Challenger disaster. Though the company played no role in the disaster, subsequent redesign of parts of the shuttle eliminated Scott's firm's role. After Challenger, Scott served four years on the Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee, formed to advise the Secretary of Transportation on the possible conversion of ICBMs to launch vehicles. In 1992, Scott was found by an Arizona court to have defrauded nine investors in the partnership organized by him. He was ordered to pay roughly $400,000 to investors in the partnership, which was to create technology to prevent aircraft mechanical breakdowns, but was never developed. Scott served as a commentator for British television on the first space shuttle flight, STS-1, in April of 1981. He also was a consultant on the film Apollo 13 and for the 1998 HBO miniseries called From the Earth to the Moon, in which he was portrayed by Brett Cullen. Scott consulted on the 3D IMAX film Magnificent Desolation in 2005, showing Apollo astronauts on the moon and produced by Tom Hanks and the IMAX Corporation. Scott is one of the astronauts featured in the 2007 book and documentary called In the Shadow of the Moon, and he was portrayed by Christopher Abbott in the 2018 film First Man. In 2003 through 2004, Scott was a consultant on the BBC TV series Space Odyssey Voyage to the Planets. In 2004, he and Leonov began work on a dual biography slash history of the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. The book, called Two Sides of the Moon, Our Story of the Cold War Space Race, was published in 2006. Neil Armstrong and Tom Hanks both wrote introductions to the book. Scott has also worked on the Brown University science team for the Chandran 1 Lunar Orbiter. For NASA, he has worked on the 500-day lunar exploration study and as a collaborator on the research investigation entitled Advanced Visualization in the Solar System, Exploration and Research, Optimizing the Science Return from the Moon and Mars. In an interesting side note, Scott took two Bulova timepieces, a wristwatch and a stopwatch, to the moon with him. 
Scott wore the wristwatch on the third EVA after his NASA-issued watch lost its crystal. He sold the Bulliver watch in 2015 for $1,625,000, after which the company, Bulliver, marketed the similar timepieces whose accompanying material mentioned Scott and Apollo 15. But Scott sued them in federal court in 2017, alleging Bulova and Kay Jewelers were wrongfully using his name and image for commercial purposes. And the following year, a federal magistrate ruled he could proceed on some of his claims. In Scott's personal life, in 1959, he married his first wife, Anne Ott. He had two children with her. Tracy, born in 1961, and Douglas, born in 1963. In 2000, it was reported that he was engaged to a British TV presenter named Anna Ford. At the time, he was still married to Anne Scott, although separated. His relationship with Ford had begun in 1999, but by 2001, Scott and Ford had separated. He subsequently married Margaret Black, former vice chairman of Morgan Stanley. David Scott and Margaret Black Scott reside in Los Angeles. Scott won numerous awards and honors. I will list a few. Deputy Administrator Robert Siemens presented Scott and Armstrong the NASA Exceptional Service Medal in 1966 for their Gemini flight. Scott was also awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for the Gemini flight. Vice President Spiro T. Agnew presented the Apollo 9 crew with the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, and Scott was awarded the Air Force Distinguished Service Medal for the Apollo 9 mission. Agnew also gave the Apollo 15 crew the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, and Scott earned his second Air Force Distinguished Service Medal for Apollo 15. On September 15, 1971, the city of Chicago hosted the Apollo 15 crew in a parade attended by more than 200,000 people. Mayor Daley presented the crew with honorary citizenship medals. On August 25, 1971, the Apollo 15 crew were honored with a ticker tape parade in New York City. The city bestowed them with gold medals. Later that day, U.N. Secretary General Thant awarded the TRIO the first United Nations Peace Medal. At the Air Force Association's annual dinner dance in September 71, the Apollo 15 crew were presented with the David C. Schilling Trophy, the association's top flight award. The Apollo 15 crew were awarded the 1971 Robert J. Collier Trophy, an annual award for the greatest achievement in aeronautics and astronautics. Scott was awarded his third NASA Distinguished Service Medal in 1978. Scott, Worden, and Irwin were granted honorary doctorates of astronautical science from the University of Michigan in 1971, and Scott was awarded an honorary Doctor of Science and Technology degree from Jacksonville University in 2013. It was the first honorary degree bestowed by the university. In 1982, 
Scott was inducted with nine other Gemini astronauts into the International Space Hall of Fame in the New Mexico Museum of Space History. Along with 12 other Gemini astronauts, Scott was inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1993. And that concludes the biography of David Scott. There is one negative mark on this gallant cruise record, and it was known as the Postal Covers Incident. The incident had been building since Mercury through Gemini and into Apollo. The public has had a fascination with objects that were carried in space, and they became more and more popular and valuable as the space program progressed. Since the beginning of the Mercury program, each astronaut had been allowed to carry on board a certain number of personal items in what were known as PPKs, Personal Preference Kits. Before each flight, a list of items was prepared for Deke Slayton, who had overall responsibility for approving them, with his chief concern being flammability. As the flights became more significant, the number and type of items increased. Aside from personal mementos, each crew had carried a certain number of medallions which they could hand out afterwards as souvenirs. The number of medallions had grown steadily on each mission. Eventually, some crew members had been carrying several hundred each, and their weight was becoming a concern. And as always, commercialization began to creep in. On Apollo 14, commanded by Al Shepard, it was alleged that the crew had carried some silver medallions on board which were to be melted down after the flight and mixed with many other commemorative medallions by the Franklin Mint to be sold to the general public. The Franklin Mint had even advertised the proposed sale before the flight. But after the flight, the deal was never consummated, and all went quiet. Nothing about it was printed in the media, but some members of Congress had heard about it and were unhappy with that situation. Unfortunately, the Apollo 15 crew had no knowledge of this event since they were busy training for their flight. They did know that Deke Slayton had halved the number of medallions they were allowed to carry on 15. According to Dave Scott, this is how the postal cover incident transpired. Several months before the flight, Deke Slayton invited the Apollo 15 crew to join him for dinner at a stamp collector's house named Walter Ironman. Ironman asked the crew if they would like to make some money on the side by signing some stamps, and they agreed. This was not unusual. The crew was approached by several members of the Manned Spacecraft Center's Stamp Club who asked them to sign many first-day covers before the flight for their members as well as for themselves. At the time, the crew could not buy life insurance. So, they reasoned if they signed some covers, 
They could be held during the flight and act as sort of a limited life insurance for their families if anything happened to them. But then, Ironman made another proposal. He wanted the crew to carry 400 lightweight commemorative covers, a hundred of which would be passed on to Hermann Siegler, a stamp dealer in West Germany, when they returned. All the covers would be stamped on the day of launch and stamped on the day of their return. The agreement was the stamp dealer would hold his 100 covers to be sold at some future date after the Apollo program was over. In return, the dealer would set up a $6,000 trust fund for each of the crew for the education of their children. Without really thinking of the ramifications, the crew agreed to this ethically questionable deal. On launch day, Scott carried the covers into the command module in his spacesuit. Later, they were transferred to the lunar module en route to the moon and thus landed there with the astronauts, so the covers made it to the moon and back. After the mission, Scott sent the 100 postal covers to Ironman, who passed them on to the German stamp dealer. In exchange, the crew received German bank books that showed the agreed amount of money in their accounts. But, several months after the Apollo 15 mission, the astronauts learned that the German stamp dealer had begun to sell the covers. In the spring of 1972, Scott told the German stamp dealer to forget the whole thing. Keep the covers, cancel the bank accounts, keep the money. The crew wanted nothing more to do with this, and they returned the bank books. This was before NASA asked the crew anything about a deal with Siegler before NASA even knew about it. But when senior managers at NASA did learn about the postal covers being sold, they were not happy. To make matters worse, incomplete information was provided to the press by NASA's Public Affairs Office, and reports started to appear that the crew smuggled the postal covers onto the flight. This was not accurate, as NASA personnel prepared the crew for the flight, beginning with their birthday suits. Everything they carried had to be specially packed by the flight support crew to make sure that it was fireproof. Everything in their PPKs was on a list, which was certified before launch. Deke Slayton was to personally approve the list, so the crew assumed that management would keep them out of trouble. But for some reason, Slayton didn't sign off on the list personally. He said the flight crew support team had already logged everything. Since the astronauts had purchased the covers themselves, the astronaut office at the Cape prepared the covers for flight and had them stamped on the day of launch. However, somehow, the support team had missed them when they prepared the PPK flight manifest. As a punitive measure, NASA management removed Scott, Irwin, and Warden from their backup crew duties for Apollo 17. However, Scott stated in his autobiography 
that he was given the choice of remaining with Apollo 17 or going to the Apollo-Soyuz test project. Nevertheless, the outcome was the same. The crew was no longer backups, and they were removed from future consideration for space flight. The matter became public knowledge in June 1972, and the astronauts were officially reprimanded for poor judgment by NASA and the Air Force the following month. But this was not the end of the incident. When Congress found out, they were infuriated, not the least because congressmen had to read such controversial information in the media before being informed by NASA, which was obligated to keep Congress fully informed of its activities. Recollections of the Apollo 14 medallion incident must have seeped into the minds of certain members of Congress, many of whom were not fans of NASA. A Senate hearing into the matter was called, and Justice Department investigation would follow. With NASA managers' anger still unsubsided, they told the crew they were on their own at the hearing but NASA still expected them to keep quiet and take the Fifth Amendment. The crew did not. Believing they had nothing to hide, they told their story from their point of view. Eventually, the Justice Department concluded that the crew had broken some administrative rules but had done nothing criminal. NASA confiscated the remaining covers, but they acted before discovering all the facts of the case. Following an investigation by NASA, the Justice Department, and the Senate, the Justice Department concluded on December 6, 1978, that NASA had no claim to the remaining covers, that the covers were never intended for sale, that there was no attempt at concealment by the crew of the fact that the covers were to be flown on Apollo 15, and finally, that the covers would have been approved to carry aboard Apollo 15 had a request been made. The crew believed that NASA had hung them out to dry, and NASA management, such as Chris Kraft and George Lowe, believed the crew got what they deserved. Long after the incident was over, Dave Scott continued to investigate what other astronauts had taken on previous flights. In his book, he claims a copy of a letter was released to him in which NASA admitted that 10 other astronauts who were not identified had been involved in selling signed blocks of stamps and postcards for Ironman. But it seems that the crew of Apollo 15 were the ones who bore the brunt of the blame for such incidents. To prevent this from happening on future flights, Kraft and Slayton changed the policy for PPKs. On future flights, everything in an astronaut's personal pack had to be listed, sealed, then signed off by Slayton, Kraft, and the NASA administrator. Additionally, each astronaut had to sign an agreement that they could give away items from those personal packs, but they could not sell them.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 338 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 15, Commander Dave Scott, Part 2, and the Postal Covers Incident. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on May 21st. If you are new to the podcast, what I am trying to accomplish here is a timeline approach to the exploration of space. I began in ancient times and now I've reached the year 1971. I try to cover the most significant space missions of each year, which includes manned and unmanned missions from all the countries in the world. Now up to this point, that has been mainly the United States and the Soviet Union but we have covered other countries as well. Something else to be aware of, if you are listening on the main feed of the podcast, you will not see all the episodes. I have the first 166 episodes available on the Archive podcast. To find it, search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you would like a better copy of those archive episodes as they were originally released with all the afterthoughts, they are available for download on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Okay, I had a few afterthoughts on this episode. Concerning the postal covers incident, each astronaut wrote about it in their own autobiography. But when you read their autobiographies, you always have to consider the source. Now, they were not objective. They presented the facts from their point of view, just as Chris Kraft presented the facts from his point of view in his autobiography. Let me assure you, Kraft does not pull any punches. So, what I try to do is corroborate their stories with other sources to get as close to the truth as possible. Now, some interesting things I found was uh, in Al Warden's autobiography, he admits that he had an entirely separate postal cover deal going on with a stamp collector called Herrick. Herrick, who Al said looked like Santa Claus, provided 144 postal covers for Warden to carry on the flight and wanted 44 of them back after the flight. Herrick agreed that he would not sell the covers until the Apollo program was over or Warden retired from NASA. Now, these covers were included on Al's PPK manifest and approved by Deke Slayton, so there was no question they were entirely above board. After the flight, Al sent the 44 covers to Herrick. When he received them, he called to ask what Al was doing with the remaining 100 covers, which Al told him they were sitting on his office desk. So Herrick suggested that for safekeeping, Al send them to him so he could look after them and put them in his safety deposit box. Al trusted him. After all, he looked like Santa Claus. (laughs) And followed his suggestion, which, according to Al, was a big mistake. Shortly after, Worden got news of a very disturbing report 
that Herrick had begun to publicly sell his postal covers through a stamp dealer in Connecticut. Worst of all, the news came from Deke Slayton. Apparently, Deke had received a letter from a stamp collecting company asking him for confirmation that the covers now on the market were genuine. Deke, of course, asked Al what this was all about, and Al explained the Herrick deal. Of course, Al didn't believe he had anything to hide. He had worked completely within NASA's rules. But Deke saw it as a breach of trust. And according to Warden, that incident really soured his reputation with NASA management and began a campaign to force him out of NASA, starting with Slayton, then Kraft, then George Lowe. Worden wrote about a visit with Chris Kraft and his office where Kraft called him, quote, just another dime a dozen engineer, end quote. Furthermore, Kraft said, I want you out of here as soon as possible, and don't let the door hit you in the behind on the way out. <laughs> How nice. <laughs> he just come back from the moon. Okay, that's nice. Anyway, this was a separate incident from the other postal covers incident that got the astronauts in trouble, but I thought I would mention that because it was interesting to know there were actually two incidents there. And I thought it was to Al's credit that he did come clean and explain that in his book, so he didn't really try to hide that in the least. Anyway, to me, it seems that the crew did make a poor choice in accepting money for the postal covers in the form of a German bank account. But in their defense, it really wasn't a top priority on their list of important things to do before a flight to the moon. I think it was more of a, okay, we will do this sort of thing without giving much thought to potential problems down the road. Keep in mind, these guys were not making much money and they were doing a highly risky job and they wanted to provide for their families. So, they really didn't do anything different than past crews had done. They're just the ones that were made an example of. So in the grand scheme of things, the postal cover incident really doesn't seem like a big deal to me. I know it was to the astronauts, though. It really, it really hurt their careers. Okay, if you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, and I want to stress that only if you're financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For the past seven years, we have been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions, and I would like to thank Patrick C., who donated at the Orion level, David K. from Australia, who donated at the Apollo level. Dallas K. from Massachusetts, who increased his pledge on Patreon to the Starship level. Ben K. from California sent in another donation this year and moved to the commercial level. Peter H. from France donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Michael M. from Denmark donated at the Apollo level. 
Pete P. from Georgia sent in a donation and moved to the Gemini level. Woody J. from Minnesota donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Andrej S. from the Czech Republic sent in another donation and is at the Mercury level. Peter and Bron M. from Noosa Heads, Australia donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Cormac Q. donated at the Vostok level. Hian D. from Australia pledged on Patreon at the Voyager level. Paul S. from California increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. And Jeff B. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Our Patreon donors have reached 243. We lost six donors over the change in month from April to May. And what usually happens there is someone's credit card usually expires. And that is, uh, and then the Patreon can't bill them on that card. And that's usually what's happened when each month changes. It's not always what happens, but it, if that's, that's usually what happens there. So anyway, we lost six, so we're down to 243. But our goal is still to reach 300 by the end of the year. I may be dreaming on that one. (laughs) Our total donors for 2020 have reached 330 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hey, friends. You know what time it is. It's time for our drawing. Now remember, the winner will get a choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Brendan Coleman. Brendan Coleman, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 330 of you who have contributed thus far in 2020. And here's wishing all mothers out there a happy Mother's Day 2020. It's definitely a different one this year. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Falling to Earth by Al Worden, Flight by Chris Kraft, and Wikipedia. That is all we have for episode number 338. We'll try to have episode 339 posted by Thursday, May 21st. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.